Welcome to the Horns Up Half Hour, Cedar Hill ISD's podcast about scholars, staff, and community. Our guests will be individuals from the district and the community. This podcast is for anyone interested in expanding their knowledge of all things CHISD. Welcome to the Horns Up Half Hour podcast. This week we have a very special guest. We have Cedar Hill High School Class of 2005 graduate, Dr. Jessica Edwards. She practices medicine in New Braunfels, Texas, and we're really honored to have her on the podcast. So welcome, Dr. Edwards. Thank you for having me. Great, great. So um, can you tell us what it was like growing up here in Cedar Hill and how your time at uh, CHISD shaped your future as a doctor? You know, I was it was great growing up in Cedar Hill. You know, I remember um, I grew up in High Point, so there was always a little pond <laughs> that I walked by to uh, get to the bus stop. And I'm actually still friends with a lot of the people I used to ride the bus with. Um, and I still talk to them, like, on Facebook. And, um, you know, from an academic standpoint, I had a really, really great experience at Cedar Hill. Um, you know, some of my, my teachers, once I remember off the top of my head, like Mrs. Treza and um, Mrs. Courtney. They really were amazing at sort of showing me how to be persistent in seeking knowledge and to never just be satisfied with mediocrity. Um, the principal when I was there was uh, Mr. Lincoln Butler, and he was amazing. And uh, I really just enjoyed a lot of the activities that I, I participated in, both you know from an educational standpoint and also um, with the um, extracurricular activities as well. Okay, so what were some of the extracurricular activities you were part of during your time at Cedar Hill? So I was a part of the National Honor Society. I was also part of the Spanish National Honor Society, and um, I was president of Health Occupation Students of America. Okay, and then you said that that being part of uh, HOSA, um, I guess, kind of sparked some of your interest in um, going into the medical field? It did. So my, I grew up, you know, my dad was a doctor, but he was always like gone to deliver babies and was out in the middle of the night. And I was like, I don't want to do something like this. You know, I want to be able to sleep. And so I initially thought about law and um, Mrs. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, Mrs. Salazar um, was my pre-P biology teacher at the time. And um, she was having a uh, health occupation students of America meeting. I think she was just launching the chapter or relaunching it. And I remember approaching her and I said, hey, Ms. Salazar, is there any way I can do something to get extra credit so I can get an A? And she said, yeah, I'm having this um, hosting meeting tonight. You know, if you show up, you know, you'll get an extra credit point. So I was like, great. So I called my mom. I was like, hey, mom, I have this meeting to attend. I'm going to get this extra credit point and that's it. And uh, once I ended up attending, I mean, next thing you know, I was signing up for events and competing in competitions and touring uh, UT Dallas and um, really just kind of fell in love with the healthcare world and, and wanted to really try to make my mark in it. So where, where did you go after graduating from uh, Cedar Hill High School? I went to Texas Southern University um, in Houston, Texas, and um, I was a part of the Frederick, Dollar, Frederick Douglass Honors Program, um, and it was a great experience there also. Okay, and then for uh, medical school? I went to the University of North Texas Health Science Center, uh, TCOM in Fort Worth. Okay, and what was your experience like in you know medical school and leading up to uh, becoming a doctor? That was a very interesting experience. I think from 
you know, sort of getting out of this bubble of being, you know, with a bunch of family all the time and having kind of that support to sort of going to a new environment where, you know, I didn't have a bunch of family members or friends um, really kind of prepared me to be able to kind of stand on, stand on my own um, and to grow as a person by being, you know, in an area outside of Dallas. I feel like I actually grew a lot by um, being able to um, do undergraduate in Houston and then live in Fort Worth, which was, you know, a little bit farther from Dallas so I could stay focused. Um, and then, you know, for residency and, um, you know, fellowship, I went to a completely different part of the country. And so um, I felt like all of those experiences combined um, really gave me the opportunity to see what life was like outside of Dallas and, and try to bring some of those things back to the state of Texas. Okay, great, great. So, um, I know when we spoke uh, last week or um, the week before, you had talked about, um, you know, now that you're in New Braunfels, Texas, which for those uh, folks who don't know, that's um, located between Austin and San Antonio, right off of Interstate 35 in that central Texas region. So you have your own practice in New Braunfels, but in addition to practicing medicine, you also uh, contribute several articles to the New Braunfels uh, newspaper and, and some other publications. What can you tell me about those experiences? You know, that was very interesting because, you know, I, I had lots of conversations with patients, you know, individually because I get to spend a little bit more time with patients than your typical doctor. Um, and uh, one day one of my patients sent an article to me, and this sort of kind of like kickstarted everything. Um, a patient of mine sent an article to me do Black Lives Matter to Blacks? And it was written by um, an individual out of Canyon Lake, Texas. And if you don't know where Canyon Lake is, Canyon Lake um, is a very, very small sort of rural community that has a beautiful lake there. So a lot of people go there to vacation, but um, there is a shortage of a lot of necessary things that are needed, such as doctors, hospitals, you know, things like that. And so um, there's also a lack of diversity there. And so it was very interesting hearing that perspective from an individual who is facing his entire belief of, of the black race and police violence and violence within inner city communities off of what he had seen on TV. And so, you know, I read the article and I wasn't really upset, but I was just kind of like, why is this guy getting the platform to write this? And um, I guess a day or so later, the ed or maybe even that evening, the editor retracted the article and um, multiple people sent me messages and said, hey, you need to respond. You need to respond. <laughs> and um, so when I did respond, um, that sort of opened the door for me to write articles on on even other topics. You know, I, I wrote one um, in regards to um, COVID and reopening schools. And, and so, you know, I wrote an article sort of talking about perceptions and how those things sort of matter. And next thing you know, I was speaking at a school board meeting about diversity and, um, you know, it just kind of all started and, and has uh, taken off. Okay. Okay. And then I understand from... Was it from that experience um, contributing to the local newspaper that you decided to start a podcast as well? I actually started my podcast back in May. Um, it's called Straight Facts No Chaser Podcast, and I really um, take a, a factual, evidence-based approach on um, just current events. So the first episode that I did um, was about COVID and reopening and examining some of the governor's 
uh, backgrounds, policies, um, and also the differences in how these policies were implemented. Um, so I think I compare Texas, Virginia, and Georgia. Um, and it was just very interesting to just kind of see how different leaders' backgrounds determined how they did things. And so for me, that was kind of fascinating and people really liked that episode. And so I decided to do more. I've, I've done some about, you know, voting rights. I've done some about, um, excuse me, healthcare. I've done some, you know, um, with a former police officer talking about police reform and, and just various topics. I've got an upcoming episode um, about why is healthcare so expensive. So I'm looking forward to doing that one because <laughs> I'm sure that's a topic a lot of people want to talk about. So as far as, um, you know, starting the, um, you started the podcast and contributing to the uh, newspaper. And then, of course, this area here in the um, Dallas and Cedar Hill area where you grew up, it's definitely a very diverse um, area. And, you know, they may not have that um, same level of diversity in the New Braunfels area. But um, have you seen in the um, amount of time that you've been working on this, have you seen any uh, progress? Um, yes, I have. You know, I, I think the conscience of the um, uh, school board has been pricked to, you know, look into hiring a diversity director for uh, the school district within the community, which I think is a huge step. I mean, if you look at New Braunfels 10 years ago, it didn't look anything like it does now. And um, I think it's been a really great opportunity to sort of introduce some new voices to, you know, a community who's probably heard a lot of the same uh, voices for so many years. Okay, and then what are um, some of the things that you that you do as far as, I think you mentioned that you're on the diversity committee? Mm-hmm. We're actually working on doing a survey to assess both diversity and equity within our city for things such as housing, um, education, healthcare, um, police interaction, um, as well as other social justice um, and social determinants of health issues. Um, and, you know, as far as my practice, I... Um, I'm the only African-American primary care physician here in town. Um, And um, I'm also the only um, African-American physician to deliver babies at both hospitals. Um, And so I am bringing diversity and shedding light on issues that, you know, affect the maternal mortality rate. Um, As you know, black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth despite education or or any of that stuff. So um, I really just tried to use my voice to bring a different perspective to the conversation. Um, And my youngest patient is four weeks old. I delivered him and my oldest patient is 96. Oh, wow. So I take care of everybody. (laughs) What's that like, you know, being a doctor to that age range of uh, patients? Um, I think it's, I like the challenge. You know, I don't like to see the same thing come in every day. I like being able to listen to people's issues and work with them to create a plan to improve their health care. I also think that um, sort of the aspect of being able to switch gears is fun to me. Um, So, you know, some of my patients, you know, who are older are making that transition to getting older and sort of walking them through some of that stuff is very helpful to me. It's something that I personally appreciate. Um, and then the other aspect of that is um, just thinking about what um, things people should be thinking about moving forward. You know, I mean, unfortunately, with the COVID pandemic, it's been a very interesting conversation with patients, particularly those who are in high risk um, 
you know, careers about making sure that their affairs are in order, considering life insurance, you know, things that you probably never really talk to your doctor about during, <laughs> you know, your visit, but just kind of with all of the changes, it, it's been a great, um, I think, platform as a family physician who takes care of a lot of families to uh, start to have those conversations about how different current events can affect us. Okay. Um, so what have you learned and how have things really changed from um, the COVID-19 pandemic from a physician's perspective? Well, I mean, I think for me, I've been um, a... I feel like I've been ahead of the curve from the beginning, right? So, you know, in my practice, when I opened it like a year and a half ago, I already had telemedicine. Um, And so for me, it was really just kind of an easy switch. And when I was looking at some of the data produced by the Texas Medical Association, 75% of the participated in the survey had not actually um, used telemedicine before that, um, which was very interesting. And so I think medicine is changing from just this run in the mail, you know, see as many patients as you can to figuring out how to do things efficiently, but also making sure that you can accommodate patients because some of the issues that we've seen uh, during this time has been access to care. I mean, there've been some patients who have needed to have surgery done and they weren't able to have it done because, you know, the hospitals had to leave room for, you know, the potential of COVID cases. Um, You know, it's changed now. you know, sort of even swapping people for COVID before they can come into the hospital to deliver. Um, You know, it's really changed things. I think for me personally in my practice, it's changed what accessibility for my patients looks like. You know, typically like during flu season, you know, a patient will call and say, hey, Dr. Edwards, I need to be seen. My assistant would schedule them. I would, you know, come into the office, evaluate them, you know, do the flu swab, wait for it to come back. And, And now things have changed to where, because I'm implementing technology, I can send them a questionnaire beforehand. Some of the the ugly things that COVID has brought out is one, um, you know, when you look at the family leave, you know, I think we're one of the only nations that I think before uh, the president uh, wrote an executive order about it, um, we did not have like, like a paid family leave policy on a federal level um, outside of FMLA. So it had been a really long time since we had that. And then um, with the, um, with the CARES Act, uh, companies, you know, that met the criteria um, had to give pay, um, uh, people who were sick or suspected to have COVID um, five, I think, 14 days of, of paid leave um, during the pandemic. And so some of the ugly things it brought out was that some people, you know, some of my patients were like, hey, I'm sick and my job is trying to make me come in. And I'd have to, like, gently remind them, like, hey, according to the CARES Act, this patient has access to leave, you know. Um, and so it, it's it's been very interesting from that perspective to see people have to make difficult decisions um, to either go back to work to be able to feed their family, um, you know, not going to work or having to take unpaid leave and, you know, things like that. Okay. And then I know you've shared with me that you've done a lot of uh, medical advocacy work both here in Texas and nationally. What can you tell me about that? Yeah. So the first time I actually did some advocacy on the, the Texas state level was when I was in medical school. Um, and we went to, um, I think the deals for medical excellence day when we were, um, uh, in Austin. And so we got a chance to meet with our legislators about, 
um, increasing the amount of residency slots in the state of Texas, which we have since done. It's been amazing, um, you know, to bring more, to keep more physicians here in Texas. Um, and then from that point during residency, you know, I had an opportunity to um, participate in the shaping of my employment contract as a resident, which I think is a great experience to get so that once you become a practicing physician, you know, you're able to negotiate a contract. And then there was a bill in New Jersey um, that had that any sort of like intern um, would not have access to uh, state disability insurance. Um, and so one of the hospital systems was using that as a reason to not give residents um, who are in their first year who are called interns um, access to that temporary temporary disability. And so we worked with uh, Sandra Cunningham, who was my state rep at the time to get that language changed. And so now resident physicians who are in their first year, AKA interns have access to that, which is amazing. Um, and then some of the work that I'm doing now, um, you know, we've done a lot of work around, you know, doctors for camp closures, done a lot of work around, um, you know, resident well-being, physician well-being, mental health. Um, and most recently, I'm doing a preparing a policy brief about um, a potential Medicare um, reimburse or a loan repayment program for um, physicians who choose to take care of potentially for medical students who make the decision to take care of the medically underserved population. So kind of my hands are in the pot in a lot of different ways. So yeah, like you said, you're working on a lot of different things. What are some of your future plans? Future plans. People always ask me that. Um, I would say, I think, you know, one, I, I'm considering making a run at local politics. Not sure what position yet, um, but considering doing that. Um, I am also interested in continuing to build on the amount of knowledge that I have now, both from the policy standpoint. So considering getting my master's in public health, I'm not sure yet. Um, and then if nothing else, trying to, um, I think probably my ultimate goal would be to become a media correspondent, um, like on the medical side. Mm -hmm. Okay. What interests you in that? Um, I think it's really um, medicine. I think also being a family medicine doctor, just in general, you get to see so many different sides of people. You get to see everyone. You get to have the experience of talking to different people and understanding the healthcare delivery side of that, along with the policy, I think gives me a, um, a very interesting perspective at, you know, talking about current events and also have the training, having the training to not use, you know, words that divide people um, or so unite people. Um, and people always ask me my opinion anyway, so I figure I might as well take it nationally. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, what are what's some um, important medical advice that you could share with families and scholars? So medical advice, you know, as we go back to school and, you know, as, as those things happen, I think really making sure that there is um, aggressive screening for symptoms of COVID. I think fever is the number one symptom. Um, and so really making sure that that you're checking your child every day for a fever or, or whatever system that the school has in place um, to make sure that children are not, you know, going to school sick. Students should be advocating for themselves that if they, you know, have an immunocompromised loved one at home and they need to, you know, do distance learning or remote learning to be able to have that flexibility to do that and to advocate for that. Anything as far as like individuals though? I think would be very helpful. I'm sorry? What about as far as like for individuals? 
For individuals, I think hand washing, sanitizer is super important. I think masks are very important. Um, you know, there's so much data that shows that, you know, the coronavirus can uh, spread more than six feet. And so I think really practicing proper hygiene and, and trying to avoid very close social interaction unless absolutely necessary is very important. You know, one thing that I did, you know, I actually had COVID um, back in what, end of June, beginning of July. Um, I went to a funeral for a beloved patient of mine who passed away suddenly. And uh, five days after the funeral, woke up horrible migraine, fever, cough. It was terrible. Um, and so, you know, I, that was a very important lesson to me for trying to only attend um, events that, you know, are very necessary and trying to decrease the, the likelihood of spreading COVID. So were you able to recover from it? I was. Um, I was sick, what was that, Sunday until maybe Friday or Saturday. And it took me, I have a history of childhood asthma, and I, I hadn't had a, um, a flare-up of it since probably college, maybe. Um, and I had to use my inhaler almost a couple times a day for about three to four weeks afterwards. Um, I just got to the point where I haven't had to use it the last, like, two to three weeks, but before that, it was pretty bad. Okay. And then, um, so are you concerned with the um, with the long-term effects at all? <laughs> I think we don't know enough about it, um, and I think not knowing the long-term effects is why I think so many entities, including, you know, not necessarily federal government, but, you know, state governments, especially our, our governor here in Texas, is trying to make sure that people continue to wear masks because we don't know will affect us long term because it's really our first time dealing with it so I think trying to prevent as many people from getting it as possible is going to be our best way to to do that okay well uh thank you for coming on the um horns up half hour podcast we really appreciate you coming on the show as a guest and then what was the name of your podcast if you want to share it with uh people again sure it's called straight facts no chaser podcast okay great well, um, thanks again for coming on the podcast. All righty. Thank you so much for having me.